All right, good morning, everyone, and happy Sabbath. Good to see all of you here again. Just a brief reminder of how our class works. If you have a question or a comment, um, I ask that you raise your hand so we can get you the microphone. We are recording this. So for the sake of the recording, um, I ask that you wait for the microphone if possible. Um, and now let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer and we'll get right into it. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We pray that you would be with us as we study Revelation chapter 7 and the 144,000. Give us deeper insight into these things. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, it's good to see all of you here again. We're in Revelation chapter 7, and if you were here last week, we covered Revelation chapter 6, which is the beginning of the seven seals, and Revelation chapter 6 takes us through the first six seals, and then the seventh seal is not till Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, and we saw that the sequence of the seals chronologically, beginning with the sixth seal, you have the great earthquake, that's the Lisbon earthquake, 1755, then you have the dark day, that's May 19, 1780, then you have the stars falling from heaven, that's 1833, and then you have the second coming. So we're in between the stars falling and the second coming, so sometime between 1833 and the second coming of Christ. And then when the, um, the seventh seal is open, we see that there's silence in heaven for half an hour, that's about seven and a half literal days. So we believe that that's during the time of the second coming. So in between the sixth and the seventh seal, we have Revelation chapter 7. And this gives us an idea of why we are still here. Why the second coming has not taken place. And so we are going to get right into Revelation chapter 7. And if I could have a volunteer read Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. So if someone would raise your hand and read Revelation 7, 1 through 3. Okay. So Revelation 7, verses 1 through 3. And after these things, I saw four angels and standing... if you could speak up, because the microphone is just for the recording, just so you know. Okay. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay. So the first three verses we just read, and thank you for reading that. We see four angels holding the four winds. And we see or that, okay, okay, well then the question is, when will the four winds be released? When, when God's servants are sealed. Now, based on an, our understanding of chronology, are God's servants sealed before or after the second coming? They're sealed before the second coming. So in, in other words, we're in between the sixth and the seventh seal, and until, uh, until the servants of God are sealed, we are not going to see Jesus come. Does that make sense? So that's where we are right now. So we have these four angels holding the four winds. Now I, I want to um, 
point out something very interesting. This is from early writings. This is um, pages 37 and 38. Ellen White comments on this passage. Here she says, I saw four angels who had a work to do on the earth and were on their way to accomplish it. Jesus was clothed with priestly garments. He gazed in pity on the remnant, then raised his hands and with a voice of deep pity cried, My blood, Father, my blood, my blood, my blood. Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from God who sat upon the great white throne and was shed all about Jesus. Then I saw an angel with a commission from Jesus swiftly flying to the four angels who had a work to do on the earth and waving something up and holding in his hand and crying with a loud voice, Hold, 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 hold until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. I asked my accompanying angel the meaning of what I heard and what the four angels were about to do. He said to me that it was God that restrained the powers and that he gave his angels charge over the things on the earth, that the four angels had power from God to hold the four winds and that they were about to let them go. But while their hands were loosening and the four winds were about to blow, the merciful eye of Jesus gazed on the remnant that were not sealed and he raised his hands to the Father and pleaded with him that he had spilled his blood for them. So the point of this passage is that over a hundred years ago, shortly after 1844, the four angels were about to unloose, or they were about to loose these four winds, and Jesus looked at his remnant church and said, they're not ready to be sealed yet. Let's hold, hold the winds a little bit longer. And so here we still are in 2008, 164 years after 1844, and that passage was nearly fulfilled. This passage here in, in Revelation 7 was nearly fulfilled 160 years ago. So keep that in mind that the, the four winds will not be released until the servants are sealed in their foreheads. Now notice verse 2 um, as we're going through this chapter. We see another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. Now... <coughs> And he, he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Now notice, at some point in earth's history, you're going to have an angel coming from the east with a seal of the living God. And when that happens, God's people are going to be sealed. So we haven't, as far as we know, that point in time has not happened yet. But at some point you will have an angel coming from the east having the seal of the living God. Well, first of all, let's talk about the seal of the living God. I think most of you, if I asked you, okay, what's the seal of the living God, I'm pretty sure I know what you would say. So let me ask you, what is our understanding, our biblical understanding of the seal of God? What is it? Okay, I hear some people saying it's the Sabbath. Now, if someone comes up to you off the street and you tell them that the seal of God is the Sabbath, how are you going to prove that to them from the Bible? I mean, it's a good answer, but we need to have a solid biblical way to prove that and show from the Bible that, yes, the Sabbath indeed is the seal of the living God. So, um, in the interest of time, we're just going to go to a couple of verses. Well, the first verse we're going to go to is a verse that talks about what a seal is, and it's Romans chapter 4, verse 11. And some of you are probably familiar with this idea. 
Romans chapter 4 is talking about Abraham, talking about the faith of Abraham. And here we have an idea of what the seal of God, or, or, or how the, the word seal is used in Scripture. Romans chapter 4, verse 11. If I could have a volunteer, read Romans 4, 11. Roger has her hand up. Thank you, Roger. So Romans 4, 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Okay, thank you, Roger. Now, we're not going to get into a breakdown of Romans chapter 4. It's a powerful chapter. But what we're specifically looking at is the word seal here in Romans 4.11. And is there another word in verse 11 that is, that is a synonym or essentially identical to the word seal in Romans 4 verse 11? It's the word sign. So the word sign is synonymous with seal. And I encourage you to study Romans 4.11 later. Now, is there... Uh, anywhere in scripture that the word sign is connected with the Sabbath. So Ezekiel chapter 20 is the verse I was thinking of, and there's maybe some other verses, but for the interest of time, we're just going to look at this one passage. It's Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 12 and 20. So if I could have a volunteer to read Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 12 and 20. Someone raise their hand or I'll pick a volunteer. Okay, um, right here, Sandra. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 12 and 20. Just those two verses, please. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. And hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. Okay, so what is the sign that we are following God? It's, it's the Sabbath. Furthermore, it's a sign that God is the one who sanctifies us. So remember from Romans 4 that seal and sign are used interchangeably. And in Revelation chapter 7, we have an angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. This is presumably after 1844. Remember the sixth seal sort of ends, as far as we can tell, the last thing that we see that we can identify as 1833 with the falling of the stars, but clearly then 1844 happened. We see Revelation 11:19. you go into the most holy place, there's the Ark of the Testament with the law of God, and of course with the law of God you have the fourth commandment. So after, or during the time of the sixth seal I should say, there would be a rediscovery of the Sabbath or the Sabbath message, and God's last day remnant church discovered the Sabbath message. Again, the Millerites discovered that. And obviously we understand that that's going to be a major testing issue at the end of time, um, the true worship of God, Sabbath versus Sunday. Now let me just throw out one other point, and then we're going to move along here. <clears throat> you may ask the question, why is the Sabbath the seal of God. Well, in Desire of Ages, Ellen White says in order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy. So in other words, if you're partying all week long, smoking cigarettes, watching dirty TV programs, and then you show up to church on Sabbath and think, 
think that you're keeping the Sabbath because you're not watching those TV programs that you're looking forward to watching once the sun goes down. That's not Sabbath keeping. That's Saturday keeping. And the Sabbath is a sign of a holy relationship between you and God that you have been sanctified and set apart for holy use. That's why the Sabbath is the seal of God. And Sunday, on the other hand, is, God, is man's day that says we can worship God the way we want and he'll still save us. So um, that's just a brief um, point there. Now here's the other thing I want to focus on quickly here. Notice that this angel is ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. Um, for those of you who remember our study on Daniel 11, um, and I don't have time to do this really, but in Daniel 11, 44 and 45, the king of the north hears tidings out of the east and north that trouble him, and then he goes with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. The, the tidings out of the east is the same as the angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. This is the loud cry message um, that calls people out of Babylon at the very end. So God's servants receive the seal of the living God in their foreheads. They receive latter rain power. This infuriates the papacy. And so the servants of God are being sealed in their foreheads while the latter rain is being poured out on God's people and the loud cry goes forth. So that's just a, um, a quick point. You can study that further in Revelation 18 and Daniel 11, but I wanted to point that out. So the Sabbath is what will seal the servants of God in their foreheads. And so based on what I just said about why the Sabbath is the seal of God, it's a sign of God's sanctifying work in our hearts. The reason why God's servants have yet to be sealed in their foreheads is because God's Sabbath-keeping people collectively don't understand what it means to keep the Sabbath. We, have, we don't have a true concept of what Sabbath is. Um, our young people... <clears throat> grow up learning that it's a day that we can't have fun. And that's about all they know. And they can't wait till Sabbath is over. Instead of being taught to love and reverence God all week long and that Sabbath is, a, is the most special day of the week where we can have especially close communion with him and where we don't have to worry about the cares of this life. So there is a difference um, in our mentality. How do we view the Sabbath? Is it a day where we can't wait till the Sabbath ends so we can watch the playoffs and hope that the Lakers win the finals or something like that? Or is it um, a day where we're just so in tune with God that we are um, having a special experience with him? So my challenge to us is we have not received the seal of the living God yet because we don't truly understand God and the Sabbath that he created for us. Now, if you remember, um, at the end of Revelation chapter 6, it talks about the great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come, and the question is, who shall be able to stand? It's a rhetorical question, and it's answered in Revelation chapter 7. And the people that are able to stand in the great day of the wrath of the Lamb are those who are sealed in their foreheads. The servants of God that are sealed in their foreheads. Now, who are the servants of God that are sealed in their foreheads in Revelation chapter 7? If you look right after verse 3, verses 4 through 8, 
describe the 144,000. Now, remember where we are in the book of Revelation. We've had the seven churches. Now we're studying the seven seals. And in the seventh church, we had the Laodicean church, which is the worst church, even though it's during the time of judgment. And so... And we understand that the Laodicean church, its time period began in 1844 when the judgment began. So then when we get to the seven seals, we see that during the time of the judgment, the 144,000 will be sealed in their foreheads. So here we have God's last day church. It's the worst church. But yet during God's last day church, which is the worst church, out of that comes the 144,000. And then when you go to the seven trumpets and you have that interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, we see that it's the second advent movement, that the message of the second advent movement that prepares the 144,000. We'll get to that when we go through the seven trumpets. So that just kind of helps you to understand the big picture of where we are. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read verses 5 through 8. You can read that on your own. You have the 12 tribes, and there's 12,000 from each tribe. What I will say is this. One tribe in particular is missing. It's the tribe of Dan. And if you study out the characteristics of Dan, Dan was a backbiter. He liked to gossip behind people's backs. And his name means judge, and he took that to the um, point of judging others in an unchristian way, backbiting, gossiping, speaking behind people's backs in a judgmental way. Therefore, the tribe of Dan is left out of the 144,000. So, Remember the characteristics of the 144,000, in their mouth was found no guile. And so if we're going to be part of the 144,000, we better learn how to not gossip about others here on this earth. We don't want to be like the tribe of Dan that's judgmental, backbiting, and gossiping, and we end up getting left out of God's last day people who have the seal of God in their foreheads. So instead of gossiping about someone, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? How about praying for them instead? That, that's a biblical way to approach it. So that's, now, and one other thing I'll say, notice there's 12 different tribes. And why are there 12 different tribes? Where I'm at in my study is that each tribe represents a different characteristic of God's people. And what God is saying is, look, if you look at the 12 sons of Jacob, those guys were a mess. Each one of them, each one of them had their own faulty characteristics. You can look at Jacob giving his charge to each son right before he died and understand the characteristics of each of those sons. Now, each of those sons had strengths and weaknesses, and they were all different from each other. And what God is saying is the 144,000 are living at a time in Earth's history which is the weakest and most degenerate of all ages and all generations. And I'm going to take large numbers of people from all sorts of different characteristics, perhaps 12 different types of characteristics. I can't prove that for sure. But you may have this type of weakness. Someone else may have this type of weakness. Someone else may have another type of weakness. And there may be 12 different types of weaknesses that God has to work with. And he says, you know what? My power is so strong that I can take anybody who has the worst type of weakness possible and I can make them part of the 144,000. So if you're a Reuben, I can work with you and make you part of the 144,000. If you're a Simeon, 
I can work with you and make you part of the 144,000. The only type of people he's not going to bring into the 144,000 are those who are backbiting and who are gossiping and judgmental towards others. Those people will not make it into the 144,000. So that's just trying to keep it practical here. But um, those are the characteristics as I see it, of the 144,000. And if you think about it, what God is doing here is, is really kind of insane, but of course God's not insane. God is saying that I will have an entire group, and I'm not here to say whether it's literal or, or symbolic, but God's going to have 144,000 out of the weakest generation that's ever lived. So he spins the great controversy on his head and makes Satan look completely unreasonable. Satan was a perfect being who sinned in a perfect environment. God will take 144,000 out of the worst environment ever possible and make them perfect just like him. And that's his challenge to Satan, and that's the challenge we're part of right now, because God's saying, out of my last day, Laodicean people is going to come the most perfect group of people that's ever been here on this earth. And Satan is saying, you want to bet? And so that's the struggle that's happening right now. We have a comment down here. <clears throat> I want to add to um, uh, the fact that uh, the tribe of Dan was um, omitted and Manasseh was actually added instead. Mm -hmm. Manasseh was not Jacob's son, but he claimed mm -hmm. him. He was Joseph's son, but he claimed him. Mm -hmm. Joseph named Manasseh Manasseh, because, uh, which means forgiveness. Mm -hmm. He forgave Mm -hmm. the ho everything that was done to him by his brothers. Mm -hmm. And so God will add the forgiving, the loving, the accepting people rather than... That's very good. Thank you, Roger. So for those of you who may not have heard, Manasseh was added in to replace Dan. And the word Manasseh means forgiving. And Joseph forgave his brothers. And so um, a characteristic of people who will be part of the 144,000 are those who have a spirit of forgiveness to others. Even if you have been wronged and they don't, have a spirit of repentance towards you. Of course, Joseph's brothers apparently did, but anyway. So thank you for that comment. Now, I want to end our class today by talking about the great multitude versus the 144,000. This is sort of an interesting area of discussion that some people don't see eye to eye on. I'm going to share with you some quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy and also read through the passages um, so that I, hopefully we will come to, I hope, a more clear understanding of, of who these two groups of people are. Um, so what I want to do right now, I want, uh, I'd like a volunteer to read verses 9 through 12 of Revelation chapter 7. We have a volunteer down here. So Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. This is speaking about the great multitude. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thank you. So, <clears throat> here we have a description of the great multitude. Now, um, does it say 
or how does it describe the number of this multitude? What does the passage say here? It says, no man could number. Now, <clears throat> let me ask you this question. When, when the 144,000 were described earlier, um, how, how, how was the number described? So John heard the number of them that were sealed, and it was 144,000. Now, it might take a long time to count to 144,000, but if you, um, actually a few years ago, the population has changed, but the population of Ontario, California used to be 144,000. That doesn't, that doesn't really mean anything, but I kind of laughed every time I drove by the sign. Um, now it's like 160,000, so they're not the 144,000 anymore. But the point I'm trying to make there is, is that the city officials of Ontario were actually able to count to 144,000. Whereas the great multitude is a number that no man could number. Do you see the difference there? So John is making a distinction that here he heard the number of them that were sealed, and it was 144,000 in number. And then he sees the great multitude, and it was a m number which no man could number. To me, that, that's a contrast. So I'll make that point. Now, <clears throat> one thing that I want to point out here, if you look at this great multitude, notice where they come from. It says they come from um, all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues. And then you come down to a group in verse 13, where it says, One of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? So the question is, now we're talking about this group in verses 13 through 17, and John is saying, or no, the, the elder is saying, Where did these people come from? Well, if they were the same group as the great multitude, John should have said, Well, they come from every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, and people. But John doesn't know, and he says, well, you know, but he's implying, I don't know where they come from. And then if you read on down, it says, verse 14, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, and he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Okay. Now, <clears throat> here's a group of people who came out of great tribulation. So, you have in Revelation chapter 7, we've heard the number of the 144,000 described, and there's 12,000 from each tribe. And then we have the great multitude, which no man could number, and they come from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And then, after John sees the great multitude, the elder says, hey, who's this group over here? And John says, I don't know, basically. And, John, and then the elder says, these are they which came out of great tribulation. Now, I'm going to read a couple of quotes to you from Ellen White, and we're going to try to spend some time 
figuring out how to make sense of this. Because <clears throat> just to give you a heads up, Ellen White describes the great multitude and the 144,000 both as having come out of great tribulation. The question is, does that make them the same? And I, I want to go through that particular argument today. So this is um, an interesting point in my mind. Let's read about the 144,000. No, we'll read about the great multitude first. This is from pamphlet 109, page 6. There's probably a better source than that, but that's what I found on the internet. So pamphlet 109, page 6. She says, I beheld and lo a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne. Clearly she's quoting Revelation 7, verse 9. It's indisputable. That's what she's describing. And she goes on to finish that verse. Then she, she skips down to verse 14 and says, These are they which came out of much tribulation and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. So here Ellen White is saying, the great multitude, which no man could number, are people who came out of much tribulation. And she's quoting verse 14 of Revelation chapter 7. Now let me then read to you another quote. <clears throat> and hopefully this doesn't confuse you, but... Keep in mind, Ellen White talks about the great multitude, then she talks about the 144,000. This is from Great Controversy. I found it back there. Page 648 and 649. Here she's talking about the 144,000. She says, um, None but the 144,000 can learn that song, for it is the song of their experience, an experience which no, as no other company have ever had. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These, having been translated from the earth from among the living, are counted as the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So clearly, she's talking about the 144,000 here. This is indisputable. Now, notice this point next. Now she's going to link the 144,000 to those who come out of great tribulation. These are they which came out of great tribulation. And she's quoting Revelation 7:14. But notice the next point that she makes here. So here, she's, this is great controversy. This is her standard exposition on last day events. So she says, yes, the 144,000 came out of great tribulation, and she uses quotation marks to quote Revelation 7.14. So she's clearly quoting Revelation 7.14. But notice the great tribulation she describes here. They have passed through the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. They have endured the anguish of the time of Jacob's trouble. They have stood without an intercessor through the final outpourings of God's judgment. But they have been delivered, for they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the t throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And so she goes on to quote verses 14 through 17 of Revelation 7. Now, <clears throat> The question is, <clears throat> could it be possible that the great tribulation that the great multitude comes out of and the great tribulation that the 144,000 go through are different? Hi, let me ask a question, and, and this is not a salvational issue, by the way. I, this is just, I think this is for fun to study the Bible and try to dig deeper 
and see what the Bible is saying. Um, how many of you think that um, the great tribulation that the great multitude passes through and the great tribulation that the 144,000 go through are the same thing? Okay, so there's some people that think that, and that's fine. How many think that they're different? Okay, a, a number of hands. Now, are there two periods of tribulation? And there's a comma over here. But let me ask this question while you're raising your hand. Are there two periods of tribulation that are described of in Scripture, or do we only know of one? Dwayne, you have your hand up, so go ahead and speak up. It's a, uh, rather than if or question, uh -huh. It seems that it's progressive. Okay. The time of trouble that the great multitude go through and the 144,000 has a beginning point and an ending point. Okay. Some may not be around at the end, but some will be at the end. So there's a progressive movement through the time of trouble. Okay. That's a good, a good thought. So Dwayne is saying that there's a progression of this time of trouble. Um, that's some may not pass through it all the way to the end. Some may be martyrs, um, but they do pass through great tribulation. So that's one thought. Chris, you had your hand up also. Um, wait till the microphone, um, right down here. There's a tribulation that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, uh -huh. which is talking about the 1260 years mm -hmm. um, because of the context of the stars falling and the mm -hmm. dark day. Mm -hmm. And then there's the tribulation in Daniel 12, 1, exactly. uh, which is talking about the time of trouble yeah. uh, between uh, when probation closes and when uh, Jesus comes. Mm -hmm. you, talked about the, um, you talked about the tension between the... Um, he, the, the specific number of the 144,000 and then the, the seeing the great multitude. Uh, John does this over and over again in Revelation. He puts seeming tension between something that he hears first. He heard the sound of a trumpet in chapter 1, and then he sees you know, a, a being that is Christ. And then in, in chapter 5, he hears uh, the lion the tribe of the tribe of Judah has been able to conquer, and then he turns and he sees a lamb. He hears one thing and he sees another. He hears 144,000, turns and he sees a great multitude, which no man can number. Okay, good point. Now, um, Chris brought up an interesting point here about the two tribulations. If you look at Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, Jesus describes a period of great tribulation. Here Jesus says, For then... For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And then in Daniel 12, you have um, in, verses, um, in verse 1, it says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, as Chris pointed out, the, tr the period of tribulation, we believe, is the 1260 years. And then the time of trouble in Daniel 12, we believe, is after the close of probation during Jacob's time of trouble. Now, is there a conflict in saying they're both the worst ever, so to speak? Well, this is um, the way some Adventist scholars have said this, and I think it's a good, valid point, that the 1260 years was a, a, was a period of tribulation that was so great because of his duration. 
And so the duration of the 1260 makes it worse than anything else that the world will ever see. Um, Jacob's time of trouble will be the worst ever period of tribulation, which Ellen White says will be worse than we can even anticipate because of its intensity. So you have a tribulation of duration and you have a period uh, or a tribulation of intensity. Now, I don't claim to have all the answers about the great multitude versus the 144,000, but my point is, is that during the seven seals, you have in the first four seals, you have a period of tribulation in which God's saints are martyred for the word of God and for the testimony which they hold. Then when you get to the fifth seal, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, you have the saints saying, How long, Lord, till you judge and avenge our blood on the earth? So these are people who were martyrs for their faith, and it would be fair to say that the Christian church of the first century and the, and the Christian church um, that went through the 1260 years endured much tribulation. And so then it would make sense that the seven seals in this interlude, when you're talking about initially God's people are martyred for their faith, then you get towards the end of the seven seals, and wow, there's a great multitude which no man could number. And Ellen White says these are people who came out of great tribulation. They went through that, the first century where the pagans martyred the Christians, or they went through the 1260 years where the papacy martyred um, God's faithful people. Now, I'm not limiting the great multitude just to that time period. I agree that you could also have people in the great multitude who lived during the little time of trouble between the, the beginning of the loud cry and the, um, the death decree for those who do not worship the Sunday law. And during that time, there's going to be martyrs for the faith. And so those people can be part of the great multitude as well. So people who die, though, are not part of the 144,000. The 144,000 are only those who are translated without seeing death. That's a special privilege that's granted to the 144,000 alone. So to say that the great multitude and the 144,000 are exactly the same thing, I personally don't see it that way. If you want to see it that way, that's fine. We're friends and it's not a salvational issue. But the, the great multitude as I see it are those who were martyrs for the faith during the first century and the first seal, and then seals two, three, and four, where you had the papacy um, persecuting God's saints. And then they cry out in the fifth seal, how long till you judge and avenge our blood? And then you have the promise of the resurrection that they will eventually form a great multitude from every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, and people that no man could num number at the end, and then you have the 144,000 also who come out of great tribulation, who go through Jacob's time of trouble, which is a totally different experience than the 1260 years. So that's my, that's where I'm at. I could be wrong if you feel otherwise, come talk to me at some point. But that's where I'm at in my study. And I encourage all of you to keep studying. And the main thing is we want to be part of that 144,000. That's our identity and mission in the time in which I we live. To, to receive the seal of God uh, in our foreheads. Thank you, everyone. Two, and we will continue with the seven trumpets where, next week. So um, we'll look forward to that. Christ is being